and I never really do it, even though it seems like I do. Um, whenever Randy has to pull up this thing from down there, I jokingly say I put it there, just out of reach so that he can't grasp it. So he has to go down and grab it. Now I know how it feels. I won't joke about that ever again. <laughs> no, nah, I will, I will. But <laughs> um, so I just want to thank you for allowing me to preach. Um, it's my joy to, to bring to you the Word of God. And uh, so this morning we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Actually, we're going to just be in verses 11 through 24, but um, I will refer to verses 1 through 10 um, just as a point of reference. Um, but uh, we are going to talk about small groups. As Pastor Randy said, uh, he asked me to speak on small groups, and I'm not sure if you're all aware. I mean, most of you are, I think, uh, but we've been starting small groups this month. Uh, there are about four groups, and they've been meeting, or will start meeting, uh, in the next week. And I can't speak for everyone in our group, but I've been so refreshed. I've been encouraged. I've been built up and just straight up been having fun in our group. And so, it, not everyone in our small group has been able to meet just yet, but, um, but we're working on that. And that's the great part about being in a small group is that those who can't make it can still be reached out to and encouraged and built up in the Lord. And so if you're not in a small group but are interested in joining one, please see Pastor Randy. He'll make sure you're taken care of. And uh, he asked me, like I said, to speak on small groups. And interestingly enough, the only times I'm going to mention small groups will be at the beginning and end of my sermon. So uh, I hope I didn't just drop the ball there, Randy, wherever you are. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> When he asked me to preach and when I wanted to preach, he gave me two dates. I chose this one. He said, okay, well, I want you to speak on uh, small groups. I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And he says, oh, and it's, and it's really important that we cast a good vision, a biblical vision for this. It's going, it's going to be really important. I'm like, uh, well, do you, do you want to do, do this? Because kind of, he's like, no, 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 you got it. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for adding more pressure. As if that wasn't enough, then I'm preaching now. So, um, so uh, as always, and especially maybe so this morning, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help as we prepare our hearts to hear the word preached. Heavenly Father, you are our God and we are your people. We thank you that you have made us your people. We thank you that you call us sons and daughters, your children, and we can come to you this morning and ask of you as a son, as a daughter, asks of their father. Lord, I pray that I would be helpful, that I would serve my brothers and sisters here this morning well as I preach your word. Help me to say correct things, biblical things. Help me to say them in a way that exudes the love that you and care for, that you have for our church here this morning. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would come now, that he would be with my words, and that he would be with all of our hearts and meditations of our hearts, that he would bless now the preaching of your word. 
May it magnify Jesus, and in doing so, may people be drawn to Jesus. And I pray that you would create, as you've already been doing and creating in our church, a community that reveals the gospel to one another and reveals the gospel to our community. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll have four points this morning. Four points. The first point, who are you? Our second point, how do you know? Third point, how do you know you love? And point four, God's promises. First point, who are you? Second point, how do you know? Third point, how do you know you love? And fourth point, God's promises. So our first point, who are you? You see, John, just to give kind of a context, I don't want to give too much because we don't have much time for that, but John is writing to people who are confused and who are being deceived. You see, people have been coming into the church and they've been telling false truths about who Jesus is and who he was not, about what is right and what is wrong, and it was contradictory to what the Ephesians have heard in the past. And the church at Ephesus is who John is likely writing to now. Interestingly enough, Paul, who founded the church at Ephesus, warned the church of such people. He says he warned them not to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Paul knew that was coming, and John is addressing that now in the church at Ephesus. So John is writing to assure them. Assure them and help them figure out who they really are, who Jesus really is. And just by a casual reading of 1 John, you'll see the word know. K-N-O-W. That you would know. So that gives you kind of a hint that they were confused, that they really didn't know. So John is helping them to assure them and to figure out who they are and how they can know who they are. So it begs the question then this morning... Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? What your position is before and in Jesus? It's very likely that there are probably four groups of people here this morning. The first group, you may, have, you may be here this morning and you feel very certain that you are a Christian because you affirm that fruit is in your life and others have affirmed that they see fruit being produced in your life as well. You trust Jesus for your salvation and you trust Christ alone. And you're quite sure. There's a second group in here. You may be here this morning that, and you think you're a Christian. And you trust in Jesus for salvation, but you're really not too sure. You need to be strengthened in that. You're not too sure, and you want to be sure. There's a third group in here. You may be here this morning, and you may think and you may believe that you are a Christian, but you really are not. And you're deceiving yourself. And you're not intentionally trying to deceive yourself, but you are deceived. And you need to be told who you are. And there's a fourth group in here, and you may be here, and you don't claim to be a Christian at all. And you don't really want to be, and you don't have a desire to be a Christian. Well, first of all, first of all I want to just thank you for being here. Welcome. You know, it's just, it's, it's neat that you agreed to be here, and that you came with whoever, or if you just came by yourself. Thank you for coming, and we welcome you here. This morning, I'm going to primarily address the Christians, but don't tune me out if you're here and you're not a Christian, because there will be points where I will address you, 
but the whole time, just, just pay attention and be aware because I hope you will find it interesting how much we as Christians know and believe we aren't perfect. I hope, it, I hope that you find it interesting how much you know, uh, how much we know that we need Jesus and we need help. So please, listen, don't tune out. So then we turn to our text then. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And I said I'm not going to refer to just, you know, the first 11 verse, first 10 verses, but, um, you know, we're just going to go through it anyway. First um, John chapter 3, verse 1, John is going to remind his readers who they are before Jesus and who they are not to reassure them. In First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Who are you? Christian, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. That should just give us a reason to pause for a second, shouldn't it? Even John, here, he stands in awe and he marvels. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Can you hear it? Can you hear it in his voice? If, if you cannot marvel, if you cannot marvel at how in the world God's love could have ever been extended your way, and love so great, love so mighty, that love that adopts you as sons and daughters of God, if, if you cannot marvel at that, then that, that is a good indication that you may not have experienced this. You may not be a child of God. Now, yes, we are in this body of flesh. We sin, and we don't feel as we ought to when we think on God, and when we think of our position before God, but Christian Allow this opportunity now to marvel at the fact that you are a child of God. Unbeliever, if you think that Christians just think they are holy and that they are better than you, then let this, our astonishment, our marveling, bear witness to the exact opposite. See, believer, do you understand how absolutely astonishing it is that you are a child of God? You were hostile to God, an enemy of God, despised his rule, despised his love and kindness, used his gifts for your own gain. And you didn't acknowledge him as you ought to have. Think about this. If, if anyone else treated you that way, how would you treat them? How would you feel about them? You'd want nothing to do with them for as long as you lived. You wouldn't want, and if they even treated your family that way, you wouldn't want anything to do with that person for as long as you could live. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were that way, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive by sending his son to die the death we should have died. That's why I love the first lines of the hymn, one of my favorite hymns. And can it be that I should gain 
an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? Who me for him? Who him to death pursued? You know what they're saying? He's saying, how can that be? I pursued him to death, and yet he died for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? How can it be? Believers, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And he goes on and says, and so we are. Who are you, Christian? You are a child of God. Who are you? Number two. In verse two, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Who are you? You are a child of God now, and you will be like him. The blessings just keep getting heaped upon blessing upon blessing, doesn't it? Not only are we children of God now, but one day we will be like Jesus because we're going to see him as he is. This is blessing upon blessing. Let this give you assurance. If you aren't sure you are a good enough Christian, if you're that group two that I talked about, you're not sure, John says, trust me, you're right, you're not. You're going to be better one day. One day it's going to be even better than you are right now. So we are children of God now. One day we will be like him. Who are you? Number three. In verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I just want you to know that each of these, I mean, this whole chapter 3 deserves like 10 to 15 sermons right here. So I, I, we can dwell on each of these, but we're going we're gonna to have to just go through it because I really want to get to 11 through 24. And so who are you? Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You are God's children now. You will be like him one day. And third, who are you? You purify yourself. See, we are concerned with doing the right thing as children of God and not doing the things that will dishonor Jesus. That's who you are. That's how you are labeled. And lastly, who are you? Number four, in verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. John reminds them that those who are not children of God live rejecting God's rule. They are living in rejection to God's commands. That's why he says sin is lawlessness lawlessness living as though you are living in rejection to god's rule to god's commands to god's laws to god's kingship but he reminds them that it is inconsistent to the nature of a child of god to live that way as you see back then the culture was such that whatever your father did for a living 
as your father's son, you would then do. And everything you see your father doing, you would then do. So John says, no one who has seen him, God, or knows him, will keep on sinning because God, there is no sin in him. So he later says that, that one who is born of God cannot keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning in um, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He's not saying, so, he's not saying that as a Christian, you are unable to keep sinning. He's not saying that, as I just said earlier, as Christians, we should be readily able and quick to admit that we're not perfect. We sin. We sin way more than we really want to sin. Right? So he's not saying that as Christians, we cannot keep on sinning. It's like when my son, he disobeys me, and I tell him, son, you cannot do that. He doesn't turn around to me, and maybe he will one day, but he says, dad, you're wrong. I just did. So I obviously can, right? No, I'm telling him that that behavior is unacceptable as my son. That behavior is unacceptable. Sinning is unacceptable behavior for the child of God. As a child of God, we cannot accept that we will keep on sinning. We cannot do that. That will not be as a child of God. That type of behavior is part of our past when our father was who? The devil. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we are sons of disobedience, following Satan. But what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to take away our sin and destroy the works of the devil. Parker knows this and can recite it. Jesus came to take away our sin and destroy the works of the devil. Next time you see him, ask him, and he probably won't say it, right? Just my luck. But Parker, ask him, Parker, Jesus was born to... And he should be able to answer. He was born to take away our sin and destroy the works of the devil. So this morning, if you're a Christian, if you belong to those first two groups that I talked about, you're a Christian, you believe that you are a believer and, and that you affirm that fruit is in your life, or if you're that second group and you, you know you're a Christian, but man, you just, just need encouragement in that. Know that you are a child of God right now. That you will be like him one day and you purify yourself and do what's right because your father is God and he is pure and he is righteous. But how do you know? How do you know? Maybe, maybe in the, you're, you're in the second and third group. Maybe you're here and, and you're like, no, I, I think I'm, I'm a believer. But really, you're going to find that maybe you're not. Maybe you've been trusting in your righteous works. 
Maybe you've been trusting that, that people will see how good I am and, and maybe that'll be good enough. Maybe God will see all the good that I've done more than the bad that I know I do and maybe that will be good enough. Maybe you're not trusting in Christ and maybe you're that third group here and you're not a Christian. Is there any way to know then if you're really saved? Is there a way to know that if, if everything I've just said that you are a child of God and that you will one day be like him, if that applies to you. So our second point, how do you know? How do you know? Verse 10. John is very, very helpful and he tells us, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Very helpful. Right? There's nothing cryptic about this. He says, okay, this is, this is, you want to know how you know? This is how you know. By this it is evident who are, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Before we read on, and you can read on there yourself, but what are some ways that we can fill in that blank? What are some ways that we have filled in that blank? How do I know if I'm a child of God or how do I know if I'm a child of the devil? Maybe you might say, I know because... I read my Bible a lot. I read my Bible a lot. So I, that, that must be a way that I know. Or I know because I, I lead the music in the church. That must be a way. Or I know because I'm the pastor of the church. Or I know because I pray a lot. Or because I'm part of a lot of the ministries in the church. Is that how we know if we are a believer? If we are a child of God? What does John say? John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. We've just talked all about that. Right? And it makes sense. You don't want to do bad things. If you're a child of God, you do good things. You do right things. That makes sense. He said that much already. And he goes on. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Did that just sound like it was totally out of right field? Like, what? Like, okay, I get the righteous deeds, you got to do that, but love your brother? Love. Love. And this love is, 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 is going to be two things that we're going to see in the next few uh, ch- uh, verses. It is, one, defining who we are, and two, distinguishing who we are. Loving one another is defining. How do you know that you are a child of God? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know you love... uh, Well, do you love other Christians? That's one test. Do you love other Christians? And does this surprise you? Because it really shouldn't... John, in, in verse 11, says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. From the very beginning. Jesus says it when he gives them the greatest commandment. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus even gives them a new commandment. In John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Loving one another is what defined God's people from the very beginning when God gave the law to set his people apart. And loving one another is what defines us as Christ's followers. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is how you know you are a 
Christian. In verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Can't get it any more clearer than that. You pass from death to life, and how do you know? Because you love one another. He gets even clearer in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you have salvation in you, how do you know? Because you love the brothers. You love one another. And loving one another is not only defining of who we are, but it is distinguishing. It is a distinctly Christian thing. Do you, do you know that? Did you know that loving one another distinguishes Christians from those who are not Christians? Is, is, did what I just said weird? Sound, sound a little weird to you? That love, love, of one another is distinctly and distinguishably Christian because that implies that those who aren't Christians can't love. Does that, does that sound strange to you? Because we know people who are not Christians who give themselves sacrificially. We know Christian, people who are not Christians who are hospitable, who are caring, who are encouraging, and maybe even more so than you or I, and maybe most Christians. So how can loving one another be, be distinctly a Christian trait? In verse 12 through 13, in 1 John chapter 3, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds evil and his brothers righteous do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you why did Cain murder Abel because of bitterness he knew his deeds were evil and Abel's deeds were righteous and he hated that so when the world sees us loving one another they will either resist it or draw near to it you may say, but how, how can someone resist and hate that kind of love? Right? Or how do we even know people who are not Christians resist and hate that kind of love? Right? Love that is loving toward one another. A love that we will find later on will be described as laying your life down for one another. How can anyone, I don't, I don't think anyone would reject that kind of love. Well, what's the most well-known Bible verse in the Bible. John 3.16. Right? What does what John 3.16 say? say? He gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have... Yes. That's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. How can anyone reject that love? That God gave his son to die for others. I, 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 I talked to my son, um, and the saying is, uh, what's the difference between reasoning with a three-year-old 
and beating your head against the wall is that eventually you'll get through to the wall. And uh, it's true. I tell my son, son, give me that, and I'm going to give you something way better in exchange. No, I want it. No, uh, listen to my words. I'm going to give you something a lot better. Just give this to me. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. No, I want this. Um, okay, well, just listen to dad. Just trust me. No, right? How can, are you serious right now? Use your logical reasoning. Come on. What's wrong with you? Are you a child? And, um, and so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like an adult's where we're no better sometimes, man. Um, but John 3.16, it's like, come on. You serious? No one can reject that love. In verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus says they're going to hate you. It's, going to not, it's not going to make any sense. It's like God's love is extended toward you. Who can reject this kind of love? Well, we all have. Until God opened our eyes to behold what is true and what is real. Loving one another is how we know we are Christians because it defines who we are. It distinguishes us from, from who we once were. And those who are not Christians, love is distinctly a Christian characteristic. Again, do you believe that? It, it really, I mean, we're, 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 we're so saturated in, in our culture. Then we see love in so many other places, but... Love defined by God here. And in fact, he is the very essence and definition of what love is. Do you know that? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7-12, through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Love is defined by God himself. And therefore, it is distinctive to Christians because the cross is the very essence of love. The world cannot comprehend this kind of love. You see, I, I love movies. I really enjoy movies. Uh, and you probably heard me say it before, but, but I, I believe movies, books, drive and interpret our culture. It's really interesting. 
That's, why, that's part of the reason why I like movies. And I'm convinced of this, that you know, it, that's how it's always been. Not movies, of course, books. You know, it really interprets our culture, especially fictional books and movies. You see the same themes over and over and over and over again. And one of the themes that, that is especially popular and one that I love are redemption stories. Yeah, redemption stories. Redemption stories are, are where you have a main character who is most likely an anti-hero, right? He's kind of that, that hero that, you know, really messes up, is actually a bad guy, you know, in, in the movie, and done stuff, really unforgivable things, until, until, at the very end, where he makes the ultimate sacrifice. The only thing that could redeem him from all the bad things that he's done is he dies to save the world or the characters in that world. His character is now considered redeemed. Right? And all the bad stuff he did, in a, in, in a sense, were atoned for. for, since, for because, because he made that ultimate sacrifice. Right? How, how many of you guys have seen the Minions movie? Minions movie? I haven't either. Yeah, I haven't. No. Yeah? Minions movie? Yes. I have. I have. Yesterday, my son watched it. Are there how many have you? Because I will not tell the story if, if not everyone has seen it. Okay, all right, yeah, enough people. Well, at the end, it's like, seriously? He, he was the reason why all that bad stuff happened, and you're, you're okay with just letting him go free like that? He should be in jail. Right? The minions should be in jail. It makes no sense, but he was redeemed because he saved everyone, right? I didn't want to, oh, shucks, I just gave away. I'm sorry, go see the movie. It's great. It's a great movie. <laughs> Oh no, I just ruined it for you all. I know you guys wanted to watch it, that's why. And so while, while all that is a moving display of courage and sacrifice, and indeed is, is the cry of the image of God stamped on all of our hearts, right? To, to want redemption, to desire our sins atoned for, it falls completely short of the story of the cross, doesn't it? Jesus had no sin in him. He didn't have to redeem himself. He didn't have to atone for himself. He, he died for his enemies. We don't see a, a movie like that. that. That sort of theme isn't out there, that the hero will sacrifice himself for the enemy so that the enemy is saved. That's love. He laid down his life not because of the worthiness of those he laid his life down for, in fact, we were the most unworthy of such a sacrifice of love, weren't we? But because in his love he determined to save his enemies, he died, redeeming us, atoning for our sin. This type of love is distinctive to Christianity as the world is concerned. I want to have a word with those who are here who are, who are not Christians. You may think, I can love like that. I can love like that. And like I said, you are stamped. Your heart is stamped by the... You're made in the image of your creator. You're made in the image of your creator. You desire redemption. You desire your sins atoned for either... And, and you are probably doing that yourself. You're trying to earn favor with something, with yourself, your conscience maybe... You may think, I can love like that. You're saying, I can't love like that. Well, well, please, hear me. Hear me. 
if this love sounds attractive to you, if that sounds admirable, if that sounds praiseworthy and appealing that one would die for their enemies, not because their enemies wanted it, but because their enemies needed it, why, why not? Why not come to Christ and be lavished with this love? If, if, you, if you want to love like that, and you find that admirable, you find that good, let that be the Spirit speaking to your heart. It says, come and experience it. You can. You can come right now and be a child of God. Right? I, I, I just said hard things about who we were before Christ. But everyone in this room who is a believer was that person. And they came to Christ because Christ opened their eyes to see the beauty of that redemption that is in him. Come to him. Why reject the one who, who is the epitome of love, who is the essence of love? Come and set your hope on the one who loves you and gives his life to die the death his enemies should have. Come now. You can be a child of God now. So Christian, how do you know that you are a Christian? Because you love one another. Just to clarify, we are to love everyone to be sure. Yes. You are to love non-Christians. You are to love everyone. You are to love those who hate you and persecute you, as Jesus says, we're to love everyone. But when John speaks of loving one another here, he means Christians. And practically speaking, because you really can't love in the way he's about to describe love with every single Christian in the world, practically, you are to love Christians in your church here. This is why we have, why we have membership. May say, yes, I love everyone here. Praise the Lord. And I have been, I have felt your love, and I have been a recipient of much of your love. In fact, maybe all of your love. Um, so, how do you know that you love one another? John tells us in point three, and we're going to be very quickly through point three and four. How do you know you love? So we see that we are children of God, and we know that we are because we love one another. Before I move on, I want to ask you something. Is your personal relationship with Jesus too personal at times? Is your personal relationship with Jesus too personal? I ask that because you can't have a personal relationship with Jesus and not desire personal relationships with Christians. Relationships with Christians is not optional and it's not only meant for the outgoing extroverted christians that's why I'm, I'm always cautious about calling our christian life just simply a personal relationship with jesus because it's a half truth if, if the full truth is not assumed that it necessitates personal relationships with christians in the local church first john chapter 4 verse 21 and this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So how do you know you love? John says in verse 16, and I love John. He just gives it plain and simple, right? Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives 
for the brothers. I want you to do something awkward. Look across the room at somebody. Look across the room at somebody. <clears throat> that person that you just looked at, you're called to lay your life down for them. Do you know that? You are called to lay your life down for that person. I, I, it's, it's convicting to me. It's convicting to me. I'm called to lay my life down for you. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? If not, can we say that we love them? Can, can I say I love you? And I have not laid my life down for you. Now, John isn't saying you're going to die for that person. That, that's already been done, and maybe some of you will be called to actually die for another. But in what manner did Jesus die for us? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, kind of gives us an idea. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you know the rest. Jesus, who will not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he laid his life down. He died, was obedient to death. He died because of a need in us, a need for atonement, to, to have the sin we committed, paid for, to bring us to God. Not because we were lovely. In fact, we were supremely unlovely. Is there someone here you consider unlovable or unlovely? Is there someone here that you consider to be that? You model the gospel most faithfully when you spend your time, your money, your energy, your possessions to love that person models Christ's love for us. How else do we know we love? Back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Friends, Pastor Randy preached on money a few weeks ago. He said that we are all considered wealthy and rich. Right? We are. We are very fortunate. God has been very kind to us that we have many possessions. If you see one of our church members with a need, do you do something about it? And I don't mean, well, I, well, I pray for them, which we must pray for one another. John is speaking here specifically about financial and physical needs. He says, you have the world's goods. You have the world's goods. And if you see a brother in need, a sister in need, and you, I like the word, I think other places say pity them, or you do not pity them, but he says close your heart against them. If you have the world's goods and you do not seek to either meet that physical or financial need yourself or gather together people that might be able to. The only other option the only other position of your heart is closed against them. 
that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You may say, well, how can I meet the needs when I don't even know about them? Well, that's where we mention small groups now. Small groups, they function to obey verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Small groups are called that because uh, of their size, but the function of a small group is for care and for community and to display the gospel as Christian care and community are meant to do. We're unable to know every single person in our church in a deep way. We're unable to meet every single me, personally meet every single need in our church. I'm sure some of your needs have not been met. I'm also sure that some of you are, are not being cared for and loved, as I have mentioned, we ought to be doing for one another this morning. I'm sure of it. Small groups are meant to be little communities, little communities made out of the greater community that is Calloway Baptist Church, in order to love one another well and to make sure that each person is being cared for and each person's needs are being met. It's to make sure that, that we ultimately reveal the gospel to the world and how we love one another. Now, what do I mean by revealing to the world the transforming power of the gospel? Well, if you didn't know, our small groups are not made out of people who have the same interests, who have the same background, or who are in the same season of life. And that's intentional. We did that for a reason. One of the defining works of the gospel in the New Testament church is that the death of Christ tears down cultural barriers. And it tears down everything that would, that would put a hindrance between us and each other. And it builds up the body of Christ where we love one another. Tell me what reveals the gospel work more. And what makes outsiders look in with amazement more. When a group of, of, of married women get together to share similar life struggles with each other to help each other grow. That's, that's good. And that's needed for discipleship. Or, what about this? A group of people ranging from young to older with nothing apparently in common, nothing on the outside, but they are preferring each other. They are loving each other. They are seeking ways to meet each other's needs. They are putting each other before themselves. And they are enjoying, legitimately, actually, deeply enjoying one another. See, God doesn't have to exist for that first group to happen. The Bible doesn't need to be true for a bunch of men to get together and, and talk about something interesting and, and share and commune over a basketball game. Right? The gospel doesn't need to be true for that to happen. But the second group, something isn't right. Something is countercultural, counterintuitive. Something is different. And we haven't seen it before. And it's the gospel. Now, don't hear me saying that women's fellowships, men's fellowships, youth groups, that they are bad and that they don't reveal the gospel. Those communities need to happen for discipleship. Yes, they, they will have to happen. But our community must be labeled and must reveal the gospel by how we, how we love each other regardless of whether we relate to one another on, on a surface level or not. Right? Because we relate to 
each other on a more significant level, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are children of God. So small groups, gospel community groups, gospel care groups, whatever we call them, small gospel community care groups, whatever we call them. It is there that we hope you will love one another, not just in talk or word, but in deed and in truth, so proving that you're a child of God, you actually do have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but like I said, this is convicting for me. Because I'm saying that, that we are truly believers, children of God, if we love one another. And if we love one another in these practical ways. And I know I haven't done that well enough. And my heart is tricky. My heart is tricky. My heart can at one point say, no, don't meet that need. You know how busy you are? You know how, you know how little money you have? You can't meet that need. And later turn around and say, you should have met that need. God is not pleased with you. Right? Our, our heart is tricky, and it will condemn us, but God is greater. God is greater than our hearts. Christian, if you are here, you are convicted to your heart. Set your hope on Christ now. Set your hope on Christ. God is greater than our hearts. Indeed, he knows our hearts. And as I said before, and I'll close with this, our personal relationship with Jesus is too personal. We have to start loving each other more. And when we do that, when we obey the command of God to love one another, right? In our culture, the ultimate, our church culture, the ultimate is almost just me and God, intimate relationship, right? That's the ultimate in our church culture. But when we make intimacy and re- with one another just as important, what, what ends up happening? Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Our fourth point, God's promises. Isn't that interesting how it works? When we love one another, when we make it our goal and desire to love one another in these practical ways, small groups being the the outlet for that, what what happens? Intimacy with God. Right? Closeness with God. What we desire for God to be in us and we to abide in him. And guess what? God is going to, he promises that he will do this work and he will answer your prayer. Did you see that? And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. In verse 22, if your focus is on loving God and caring for his people, ask for anything, anything, and he will give it to you. We could qualify that, but I'm not because John doesn't. If you love God and you love other people, ask for anything, anything, and he will give it because God will build his church and he will care for his people. We have a church covenant. I'm going to read it. And we're going to close in prayer. This is what we have all committed to one another and we promise to fulfill. 
our small groups is our desire that this would be where our, this covenant is fulfilled. In our commitment to these articles of faith, we make the following covenant. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and on profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into the covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We pledge, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote the prosperity and spirituality of this church, to sustain its worship services, ordinances, doctrines, and discipline, and to contribute cheerfully and regularly with our time, tithes, and talents for the support of the ministry and expenses of the church. We also undertake to maintain family and personal devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to strive to walk uprightly in the world, to be just in our dealings and faithful in our engagements, to avoid gossiping, backbiting, and excessive anger, and to use our influence to combat the use of abusive drugs, the spread of immorality, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further commit ourselves to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy, in speech and in speech, to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation, mindful of the admonishment of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover affirm that when any one of us moves from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church in our new locale where we will continue to carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Father, I thank you for my church family here at Calloway Baptist. I have, the, I have been the recipient of the care, the love, from you that you have commanded in 1 John 3. I have been the recipient of such care and love. Lord, I pray that you would continue to build your church. Lord, I ask because you say if we ask, we will receive. I ask that your spirit would come now. Fill each of our hearts with love for one another. May love increase May you bind us with peace. May we be so zealous to outdo one another in honoring one another. May we be so zealous to meet needs that we can say as the first century church said that there was not a need among us. Lord, I pray that for each and every person that we would reveal the gospel to one another to this community as we obey you in living out who we are, your children, as we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.